We're in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I've been going through Matthew for a little while now. Let me pray, and then we're going to jump in. We're kind of picking up in the middle of what's known as the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Um, so we're going to start, actually, with verse 5, and we're going to go 5, 6, and 7 today. Um, and then we'll do part 3 of the Beatitudes next week, and then that'll be kind of the whole Beatitudes. So let me, let me pray, and we're going to pick up in the middle. I'll, I'll, I'll catch you up if you haven't been here. Let's pray first. Lord, I thank you for um, this opportunity that you've given us to be able to gather here together and to, to study your word and to worship together as a church body. And Lord, um, though we may not think about it all the time, there is certainly something special about the body of Christ coming together, um, corporately worshiping together, corporately hearing, um, if it be your will, from you, from your word um, there's something special about that as we gather together. It's not just a, a general gathering like anything else. And so, Lord, I pray that as we study your word and as the Holy Spirit teaches us and convicts us, that you would unite us together as a body to want to be on mission together, to want to do life together, to want to be in community together, to want to serve one another, to want to love one another. And as we do those things with each other, that we can't help but go and serve our neighbor and love our neighbor, um, do community with our neighbor, those that don't know Christ or those maybe who barely know Jesus but need um, for us to come around them and, and show them the beauty of the gospel. So Lord, may this be the catalyst of the way we live this time together. May it be the beginning of how we go and serve and live lives of worship for you. Lord, I just pray for myself, especially this morning. Um, if I don't have the Spirit teaching me and guiding me and using me, then I'm just standing here talking. And so I don't want that, God. I want that the Spirit would come and speak through me. And so please, Lord, remove me out of the way. And all the things that you would um, want to be said, Lord, I pray that you would you would say those things through me, that you would use me this morning, and that you would help me um, teach the scriptures accurately. I thank you for this opportunity to be able to teach your Bible. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we here at, at our church at Remedy, um, God's church, but where we are, uh, we believe in teaching through books of the Bible. So um, week in, week out, mostly throughout the year, you're going to, as you come, um, hear us just preach through the scriptures wherever we finished off last week we're just going to pick up that very next place the next week because the bible tells us that um it itself is god breathed it itself is the thing that trains us in righteousness it's the thing that shows us where we have have sin problems it's the thing that grows us in our holiness and our sanctification and so um, we believe that the best thing we can do is just go through the scriptures verse by verse addressing every issue that one of the books of the bible would address and so that's what we're doing right now in the book of matthew we're in chapter five um, and for those of you that maybe haven't been here i'm going to do a, a really fast review i encourage you to just go to itunes and, and type in remedy church and and find that and you can kind of catch up if, if you're looking to find out um, everything about kind of everything that's been going on in matthew but here's kind of the gist of it matthew was written by matthew and it was written to um, the jews at the time and 
Matthew knew that the Jews at the time were very much acquainted with what would be the Old Testament scriptures, um, the thing, the books before the book of Matthew. He knew that they knew that. So as he's writing to them in the very beginning, when he starts in verses one through through eighteen, seventeen, he starts with a genealogy showing that this man Jesus is from Abraham. And then as he goes through this genealogy, he talks about the birth of Jesus. And then um, he brings us into chapters 3 and 4 after Jesus kind of starts his public ministry. He's baptized by John. And then um, he goes and he's, he's tested for about or tempted for about 40 days. He's fasting for 40 days. And after the, after the fast is over, Satan comes and tempts him. And then we can see he goes and calls his first disciples. And as he calls his first disciples in verse uh, chapter 4, Four, verse 17, there's a turning point right here. Um, Matthew has another turning point in chapter 16, but we can see this is a serious turning point here. In 417, we've kind of, Jesus has prepared for ministry up to 417. And at 417, Matthew gives this turning point, and he wants the Jews to see this, the, the Israelites whom he's writing to. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is a turning point where he's not preparing for ministry anymore, but he's began or he's begun his public ministry. And now he is going and doing his three-year ministry. Um, And we can see in 423, he says, and he went all throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing everybody. So his message for the next three years is the gospel of the kingdom. So... Here's something that we need to realize. As we go into the Sermon on the Mount, this isn't some kind of new information. What's going on in the whole Sermon on the Mount, and specifically where we are, which is the Beatitudes, which is kind of the precursor to understanding the entire Sermon on the Mount. You get the Beatitudes, you get the entire Sermon on the Mount. You get the entire Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, you get the whole Christian life. You understand it all. Jesus, as he goes into the Sermon on the Mount, is going to unpack for three chapters. They didn't have chapters then. What it means to be what it means to be someone who is um, following after Christ, understanding what it means to be uh, the kingdom of, of heaven. So look look at the our gospel of the kingdom. Look at twenty three. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So what he's going to do here is explain to us the gospel of the kingdom, and we we see that because in five three and five three, as he begins, these blesseds are um, there's a there's a condition, and then there's the thing that happens. It's blessed are the poor in spirit. So that's a condition. For theirs, and this is kind of the result, is for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's in 3.10. And if you flash down to the last um, beatitude, which is in 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the, there it is, kingdom of heaven. And so there's this little theological word called inclusio, and we just call that a bracket. And what that means is it begins with kingdom of heaven and ends with kingdom of heaven in the beatitudes. So everything that's going to be explained in the beatitudes is going to unpack to us what it means to understand the gospel of the kingdom. This is not law. The, the, the Sermon on the Mount has been misunderstood sometimes that Jesus has kind of ex, explained to us in Exodus 20 what the, what the Ten Commandments are as law, and this is just more law. This is explaining how to live out the law. This, this isn't more law. This is the gospel. All right. So we see 4.17 takes that turning point, and it says that Jesus began to preach. Now, in, in chapter 16, there's one other turning point. This, this 4.17 turns and, and shows us this three-year ministry. And uh, chapter 16, I think it's uh, 30, I can't remember, 31. There's this from that time he went on. And that next turning point is he, he's, he's setting his, his mind and his, and his life towards Jerusalem. And what that means is now he's ready to die. So that's, that's the second turning point in, in the end of Matthew, or really kind of the middle. And so here, what we're going to start doing is, is seeing 
the Sermon on the Mount, and as Jesus explains to us, which is the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And he wants us to understand that this is what the Beatitudes is about. Matthew wants us to understand that this is what the Beatitudes are about. And as we understand the Beatitudes, these, these first um, 11 or 12 verses of, of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to understand the rest. So the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is just un, um, kind of a longer explanation of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes themselves are absolutely amazing. And they, they kind of define for us what it is, the Christian life. They explain to us everything. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount um, and, and trying to help us see that this is gospel, not necessarily just more law. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ died to enable us to live on the Sermon on to live the Sermon on the Mount. Let me, let me take one step back because I sometimes sometimes I talk and I'm not sure if we're on the same page. I want to make sure we're on the same page when I say gospel, not law. All right, here's what I mean by that. All right, law is this. Law is you want to have a right standing with God. You want to be right with God. Here's the rules. Obey the rules. Obey these rules. If you follow these rules, then you're going to have a right standing with God. And that's law. And that's kind of the understanding as they go through the Old Testament scriptures. If you want to have a right standing with God, you need to obey the law. Well, the law was given so that we could understand we can't have a right standing with God. We, there is no way that we will ever be able to keep the law perfectly. And so the way to have a right um, standing with God is not by law keeping. Instead, it's by the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Christ. The gospel are objective true statements that a man named Jesus came and lived. And as he lived, he did good works and he went eventually to a cross. And when he went to the cross, he died. He didn't just die in general. He died specifically for his people. He died. He took the place of them. Every one of us has sin and every one of us should rightly be punished for our sin. We should all go to hell and be um, eternally punished for that. We, we deserve death. But Jesus, in His infinite goodness, went and died on the cross for us. He, he died in our place. That's, and if, if it ends there, then it's just not very good news. Gospel literally means good news. But He didn't just die, but three days later, He rose. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. Therefore, since He has defeated Satan, sin, and death and died for us, He's defeated Satan, sin, and death for us on our behalf. We now, because of him, have defeated Satan, sin, and death. And if we believe, if we trust, if we put our faith, not in just some kind of... Um, we, we're not, when we say believe, we don't mean, mean believe that Jesus lived or believe that this man named Jesus existed or we, we don't believe that there is a God that created. The, that's too general. We mean put our faith in the atoning work of Jesus for us on our behalf. We believe that his death was our death, and we're going to count his death as our death, and which means all of our sin is then, the theological word is impute. All of our sin is imputed to him. And when that happens, a great exchange happens. All of our sins imputed to him, but all of his righteousness is therefore imputed to us. And God calls this justification. You are now justified. At faith, after you regenerated, your eyes are open to be able to see and understand the beauty of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for you. And then you put your faith in Christ. God declares you righteous. Now, we can't miss what that means. All right? It's so key that we don't miss what it means to be called justified. When you are justified at faith, you are now 
in perfectly right standing with God. That will never change. He's not like when you're 70 and you've lived more of a holy life and you've, you've put to death sin. He's not now saying, oh, now I'm in love with you. Now you're in right standing with me. It's at the moment of faith, at 17, at 8, at 30, whenever it is, you are never going to achieve more right standing ever than what you have right there at faith. Now, this is why that's good news, okay? Because when we're talking about this and, we're, and, and I'm unpacking here the Sermon on the Mount and you're saying, oh, that's so hard, I can't do that. You're, you don't need to do these things in order to re- earn a right relationship with God. Your right relationship with God is absolutely determined at faith. That's the gospel. You, you have to know that the gospel isn't just something that gets you saved. The gospel is something that, as a Christian, you live in for the rest of your life. So that when you see a Sermon on the Mount and you're saying, how am I going to be merciful? How am I going to be pure? How am I going to be meek or a peacemaker? The truth is, the gospel has declared you now righteous. You are, right now, if you put your faith in Jesus, righteous so you're not earning or you're not doing these things by your own power god has declared you righteous you're walking in you are holding true to what you've already attained you are giving evidence to what's already happened there is no work that has to be done in order for god to have more favor on you you have been given favor at justification at faith at the point you say christ i believe in your work I confess my sin. Please forgive me of my sin and be in my heart now. I, I, I want the forgiveness that you extend to me because of the gospel. So we, we need to understand that when he's saying these things, um, when I'm, when I'm kind of saying this isn't more law, this is gospel, this is the good news that you can walk in this. This is the good news that as a follower of Christ, this is true of you. It's not going to be true of you if you try harder. And you'll have right standing with God. This is true of you now if you are in Christ. That changes everything. And that literally changes everything about the way we live. Because if you don't have a devotion one morning or you forget to pray for an extended amount of time or you're, you're in sin and you know you're in sin, all of us, all of us, our first thoughts are, I'm not right with God. I'm going to have to stop doing these things or start doing these things so that I can go back over to God and say, okay, God, see, I'm reading my Bible and praying now and I'm not doing that sin. Now we're back in good relationship, right? Because I was doing those wrong things. And that's just not how the gospel is. That is not true. The gospel is you are 100% righteous now. There is no earning favor. So when we sin, yes, I mean, First John 1, 9, we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is an ongoing work of a Christian, not just at the beginning of faith, but that is something that all Christians must do, confess and repent sin continually. But it's not to earn favor with God. We have to get that down. And so as we see that and as we understand, and we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, it helps us understand that. This isn't something that we're doing in order to earn favor. This is something that has been done by Jesus for us on the cross. And now we're walking in that. We're living out what is true. So revolutionary. So key. I mean, it took me so long to get that. But once I finally understood it, it's life-changing for us all. So here's what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, The Lord Jesus Christ died to enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount. 
He died that to enable us to live the Sermon on the Mount. This means that he died in order that I might live the Sermon on the Mount. He has made this possible for me. So when we read these things, when we're overwhelmed by the things that tells us that we, we're supposed to be doing, Jesus died to make these things possible. And this living, I'm sorry, and this living this does not earn salvation, but gives evidence of the joy that is to be, that of what it is to be saved by him and loved by him. So at salvation, you're so overwhelmed. You and I are so overwhelmed with joy and love for God that we can't help but live these things out. And I know what you're automatically thinking. Well, that doesn't seem to summarize my life. We're going to get to that, right? I promise you we're going to get to that. So these short statements here in the Beatitudes really explain the whole Sermon on the Mount. And once we see and understand the whole Sermon on the Mount, then we understand the whole Christian life. We understand the whole Christian life. So the Beatitudes are nothing to just kind of breeze by. Like these things are pretty awesome. Um, They're very key. And we see at the very beginning of each one of the Beatitudes, blessed, 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 or blessed, whatever, um, this is just means, uh, this doesn't mean, it means happy. Like if we could translate it, it would probably just come right out as happy. But it's more than happy. It's, it's not just happy, but it's being favored and approved of by God. And this favor and this approval by God is unshakable. It's unshakable favor by God. Unshakable favor on the man if he is poor in spirit. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's the idea when we see this blessed. Now, I'm going to do this exercise all three times before we go in, and I promise you we're about to get to the text in verse 5. Um, I want you to see this all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount is rather amazing. Christ is awesome as he preached this, and it's got kind of two little, two little senses in which we understand it, and both of them. It's not either or, it's both and. All right, The Sermon on the Mount is absolutely characteristics of a Christian now. These things are absolutely true of every single Christian. Every single Christian is poor in spirit. Every single Christian does mourn for sin or is meek or is hunger and thirst for righteousness and merciful. These are, what, these are the things that are true of Christians. Every Christian should have that. But the Beatitudes also, the Beatitudes also are the progression of what it means to be a Christian and, and going through the Christian life. And I want, I want you to see this progression. I did it last week, but I want you to see it again. And this progression literally is the gospel itself. All right? Just kind of follow along from 3 to 10 and you'll see. The first, it starts off with poor in spirit. And this poor in spirit is when we recognize our sin. And when we recognize our sin, we then start desiring what is the kingdom of heaven. And as that happens, and as we are poor in spirit, we mourn because we're broken of our sin. We realize our spiritual bankruptness, and we mourn for our sin. And when we mourn, God comforts us. And as we keep going, we realize that we are spiritually bankrupt, and we mourn. And there is no other attitude that we can take besides meekness. Meekness is the only right attitude in light of the fact that we have realized we're poor in spirit and we've mourned. And as we're meek, we realize that it's okay that we're weak, that God is strong, and then He promises us that we will inherit the earth. We'll explain that in a minute today. Um, As we are meek and we realize God is strong, the right response for us then is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want righteousness then. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm meek. I'm mourning for my sin, God. What I want is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want your righteousness. As we see that, He is the one that can only satisfy us. He is the one that can give us our righteousness. 
Then, as we are shown mercy from Him, we are given righteousness. He is merciful to us. We are now enabled to go and be merciful to other people. And as we're merciful to other people, we become pure in heart. We seek holiness in our life. We bank and live on the promises that one day we will see God because He has purified us. Now, here's where it gets pretty amazing. We are now a Christian in this moment because now we're seeking after holiness and we become a peacemaker. Peacemaker, not in the sense that we're trying to just do something temporal peace-wise, but we're trying to do the most eternal sense of peacemaking. We're finding those who are hostile to God, who are not at peace with God, those who are not walking with Christ, unbelievers, those who don't believe in Jesus, whatever you want to say, and we're trying to make peace with them and God. We're ambassadors going around to people, declaring to them, Be right with God. So we become peacemakers. And this is the greatest peace that anybody can understand or have is peace with God. And as we are becoming peacemakers, we are wanting them to uh, be be called sons of God because we are now a son of God. And the last thing is, which is sure as any follower of Christ, because no servant is greater than his master and our Jesus is master and he was persecuted. As we become peacemakers and we seek to reconcile people to God we will be persecuted. But we can take heart because the kingdom of heaven has been promised to us. And we can rejoice and be glad because Christ is our all. And that's basically the, the outline of a, of a characteristic of every follower and the outline of the Christian life. The Beatitudes are absolutely astounding. They're absolutely astounding about how practical they are. So as we were going through this, the first one that we saw, and what I wanted to do is as we're, we're going through this is not try to... Um, say, these are things that you need to do. Come on, do these things. Rather, I wanted to show you that these eight Beatitudes are who you are. Instead of saying, so come on and be poor in spirit. I'm saying, Christian, God has said you are poor in spirit. So the first one was, if you have believed in the gospel, you are poor in spirit, which just literally means that you are realizing that because of God's holiness and in light of God's holiness that your ability to be moral is absolutely impossible. That your spiritual life without reconciled to God is bankrupt. You can never be holy. You have, and all of us, me me included, have broken the laws of Christ and that makes us poor in spirit. But the kingdom of heaven is ours. And then the second thing we saw is this. Um... Blessed are those who are mournful. So as we are, this is the natural um, connection to being poor in spirit. When we realize we're spiritually bankrupt, the only right response is, this is the emotional response to the first one, is that we mourn. Christ tells us as we realize that we are sinful, our right response is mourning. Now that doesn't mean that in front of everybody you just go crazy and boo-hoo. Um, it means that there is a there is a sense in which in your spirit you know the holiness of God and the offense that you've had to God in light of that, and there is a sense in which we all feel real mourning. We feel a sense in which it saddens us that we sinned against our God. So, you are mournful. And because you're mournful, God will comfort you. So now we've come to the third one. So let me read these three, and then we'll explain the next three. In verse 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. The word filled can go as well, but I like satisfied. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So the first one here is blessed 
are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Um, meek, meekness is not weakness. We don't want to confuse the two. Meekness is not weakness. Um, meekness is, however, the complete opposite of the way the world thinks. Notice the connection here. Blessed are the meek. You shall inherit the earth. That's a pretty big promise. You're going to inherit the earth if you're meek. That is the opposite of the way the world thinks. They think, I want to inherit the entire world. I'm going to dominate. I'm going to divide and conquer. I'm going to have it my way. And God's saying, you will inherit the earth, but it's got to be done through being meek. It's the exact opposite of the way the world thinks. Now, this meekness is understanding how you view yourself before God and how you relate to others. Another word for meekness is just gentleness. It's just gentleness. Um, D.A. Carson asked the question. He said, are we usually meek people? Are we usually meek people? And this is what his answer was. Um, Individually, each man tends to assume without even thinking that he is at the center of the universe. Therefore, he relates poorly to the six billion others who are laboring under the same similar delusion. (laughs) So every one of us tends to think that the world revolves around us. So very few of us are actually meek all the time. Meek is mild and gentle. It's we're not asserting our own desires to further our own agenda over people. Instead, we're going to be gentle with them. Um, It means that we do not have an ongoing desire to advance our own desires, but other people. Um, We don't want to advance our agenda but we want to serve and here's the thing if if we only desire if our only desire is to further our own agenda our own desires our own plans if that's our own desires to continually advance our own things but not anybody else we don't want to serve other people then every man around you including the closest people to you your spouse and your children your roommate will become an enemy because they have theirs they will, they will necessarily become an enemy if you only desire to advance your own agenda, unless they want to advance your agenda, and then you're just an autocrat. Um, and that's not necessarily a, a, a fun person to be around. Um, so, husband or wife, if your own desire is to further your own agenda and not serve your spouse, then you're not being meek. If a boss and employee, if you only desire to further your own agenda but you also don't want to serve, then you're not being meek. Or roommate to roommate, or, or whatever. So the most logical step after the first two is that we must be weak. If, if we've realized that we're poor in spirit, that we are spiritually bankrupt, and we've mourned because of it, then meekness or gentleness is the only logical response next. Um, we are submitting ourselves completely and wholeheartedly to God because we've realized our right place, and we must be meek before him and let his plans be our plans not further our agenda onto him it's the only logical step that we can do sinclair ferguson says this the meek man is the one who has stood before god's judgment and abdicated or gotten rid of or said i don't want um, his own supposed rights he has learned in gratitude for god's grace to submit himself to the lord and to be gentle with sinners and here's the thing when we are meek we inherit the earth. Inheriting the earth, by the way, doesn't mean 
that we, it's replacing Jesus. It's not like, oh, well, I want the earth over Jesus, so I'm going to be meek so I can have the earth. Thanks, Jesus, you're good, but the earth, I mean, seriously. Um, it's not, it's, that's not the idea, okay? And this inheriting the earth can, can in no other way be understood than, kind of a big word, eschatologically, which just means in the last days. This inheriting of the earth does not mean today. I mean, look around. Who's inheriting the earth right now? Christians? I don't think so. It's not a promise for today. It is a sense and a promise for today, but it's more for the future. When one day we will be in the new heavens, in the new earth with Christ, we will inherit the earth. But we want to make sure we understand that that's inheriting Jesus. I'm going to get to that in a second. Um, So this inheriting the earth. Remember, this is Matthew writing to people who are Jewish. And so they knew the Old Testament scriptures and they knew that God is promising to the Israelites, you're going to have a promised land. You're going to have a promised land. You're going to have a promised land. And so they're always thinking, kingdom, promised land, it's ours. It's supposed to happen. We want to inherit the earth, specifically this place that's been promised to us. We want it. We want it. And he's telling them, if you're meek, you will inherit the earth. That promised land you've always been thinking about will happen. So he's he's drawing them in. And he's helping them see that it's not necessarily now. The inheritance of the earth finds its ultimate fruition, not now, but in the new kingdom where the meek inherit the new heaven and the new earth. So this promise isn't necessarily right now. But, I mean, honestly, which one do you want? Do you want this earth right now or do you want the one in the future? Do you want this broken, sinful earth right now? Sure, we're here and this isn't our home and we need to be on mission and we need to find people who don't know Jesus and and lead them. Or do we want the one where Christ has set up his kingdom and there is no sin and there is no brokenness and there is no um, disease anymore and every tear is wiped from our eye? Which one do we want? Obviously, the other one. So here's the perfect example of meekness. Here's here's one of the instances where Matthew and chapter 11 is explaining meekness and, and is using He's using Jesus. This is Jesus' words in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am, I know it says gentle, but it's the same Greek word. It's meek. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the ultimate example of meekness or of gentleness. So gentleness or meekness, never means weak. Jesus is the strongest person that's ever lived. He is the ultimate example of meekness. So our understanding of it is to realize that Christ was the ultimate example of meekness. It's very rare for us to find people who are poor in spirit and mourn over their sins. And But if we do those things, then we can understand how to be meek. Um, but meekness is something that's wrought in us or done by the Holy Spirit in our lives. So certainly when we are walking through life and we don't see ourselves being meek, um, we want to pray that God would do that. And that's going to happen by realizing our sinfulness in front, of the, in front of God and His holiness, being sorrowful for sin, which leads us to be gentle, which leads us to be meek and more Christ-like. So that's the first one, is, um, is this. Let me, read, let me read number three to you. If you have believed in the gospel, you are meek. Therefore, you will inherit the earth. Now, I know you don't feel like you're meek all the time. And I don't feel like I'm gentle. I feel like I want to further my agenda over God's. But the truth is this. 
Christian, these things aren't describing what you need to do. They're describing who you are. You are meek. You are gentle. You really are. So hold true to that. It's not some kind of distant thing that you can never get a hold of. It is what's true of you. All right, so we're going to the next one here in verse 4. And I'm just going to say, I'm sorry, verse 6, the fourth beatitude. This next one is, it's absolutely amazing. Some of the commentators said that this beatitude kind of lies at the center of the beatitudes. They, 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 they build into this and understanding this is just amazing. All right, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The first three Beatitudes drive us into ourselves. They drive us into ourselves, recognizing who we really are in front of God. They push us in. But this one makes the turn. It no longer drives us into ourselves. Instead, it forces us to realize our sinfulness and then shoves us out or drives us out of ourselves to see our sinfulness and drives us to look to nowhere else but to Christ. This one is the turning point and drives us to our only source of hope, Jesus Christ. This is this statement right here. This statement is God's answer to the spiritual longing that man experiences. Every single one of us experiences spiritual longing. And God, whenever you've longed, you may be longing right now, you may be longed for something 20 years ago or 5 years ago, and you just kind of shoved it off to the side and ignored it. There has been a time in your life where, where God, all of us, because of Romans 1, know that we can see and understand there is a God, and He has, he has put inside of us an understanding that He exists and that we're sinful in, 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 in light of Him. And there will be a point where you will desire to know Desire to live, desire to walk, desire to understand. There's a longing every single one of us has. And this is the answer. This is the answer. Now, you might say, I don't think I've ever experienced that. I I don't think that experiencing a longing for God has ever happened in my life. Let me read a quote to you from a man named Augustine. He lived about 1,700 years ago. This is what he says. Thou hast made us for thyself. They always speak in King Jimmy back then. Um, that, that's King James for all of us. King Jimmy for, from South Carolina. Um, thou hast made us for thyself. Thou hast made... Talking to God. God, you have made us for you. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Your heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. You can seek out pleasure anywhere. Go read Solomon. Go read all the works of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. You w- all of us will seek out the rest of our life to find this rest, to find this pleasure. But God has put into you a deep desire for the deepest pleasure ever, and that's only going to be found in Jesus. So don't settle for temporal things like sex or drugs or partying or fame or anything like that because you will be restless until you find Christ. Every one of us experiences this. And I'm going to tell you, when you get to the end of those ropes of partying and drugs and girls, all you're going to want is more. All you're going to want is more, and you will still be restless. Get a new phone. And in three months, you're going to, you're going to be like, this is boring. This is boring. I want a new one already. 
your heart is restless until it finds Christ. And when you find Christ, you don't want something else. You want more Christ. You just can't get enough of Jesus. That's the only place you will find rest. So, what happens if I don't hunger for it? You do. You do hunger. Don't allow your senses to be fooled by the trappings of this world. You should not let yourself get dull to the temporal pleasures of life, but rather seek the eternal pleasure which is only found in Christ. Ask God that He would give you a a discerning spirit to see His work around you and pursue Him and not anything else. So the fourth and even the fifth, this, this one right here, and even the fifth, they go hand in hand to sh- while the first three show us our sin. We're never to be s- paralyzed once we realize we're sinners. We're not supposed to just stop and fall on the ground and go in the fetal position and be like, what am I going to do? That's not the point. We're supposed to move ourselves to the fourth and fifth beatitude. We're not supposed to stay dwelling in ourselves, but they always push us over to Christ. It pushes us to Jesus. And now we're going to turn away from ourselves and turn to the righteousness of Christ. This marks, this movement from the third to the fourth marks in every one of our lives the moving away from immaturity to maturity. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Notice the verbs. Hunger and thirst. This is expressing desire. This is expressing deep longing. And Matthew and Jesus is using words that are common to every single man. Every single one of us has experienced hunger and thirst. I'm experiencing thirst right now. Got the cotton mouth. All right, so here's, here's, let's just look at um, a couple Old Testament in the Psalms um, ways that, that these guys would speak whenever they would desire Jesus, God. I know it's God then, but it's Jesus, because Jesus was God, Listen, or is God. Listen to this. Um, this is just a couple psalms. I'm just going to read you a couple verses. Just listen. Just listen to it, all right? As the deer plants, I'm sorry, pants, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. Think of a deer. It's absolutely thirsting almost to death and it's looking for water it it's absolutely desiring it's so bad that it knows that it's panting and it needs it absolutely and he says in the same way that deer pants or thirsts for that water he says my soul thirsts for god in that exact same way my soul thirsts for god for the living god here's another one i want you to listen to this This is David. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. David was out in the wilderness. And he's comparing his, his circumstances that he's in, that he's actually hungry and he's actually thirsty out in the wilderness by himself. He's, he's comparing those circumstances to his actual desire for Jesus and how much he wants Jesus. And he says, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, which he is. He says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
He's saying, my soul is desiring, my, physically right now, my body is desiring food and, hung, and, and drink right now because I'm in this dry and weary land. There's no water, there's no food. And you know what? That's making me think that's exactly how my soul feels. For you, God, right now, the way I feel in my body right now. And this is a natural response. It's very obvious here that he's trying to use hunger and thirst to point us over to what it means to feel like, to desire the most imminently desirable thing in the world, which is Christ. Righteousness to this man is as important as food and drink. He must have righteousness. He absolutely must have righteousness. Now, Sinclair Ferguson says this, to have a right relationship with God, we're we're wanting to understand what this hungering thirst for righteousness, what does righteousness actually mean? He says this, to have a right relationship with God and consequently to be righteous before Him, it also means to desire to live rightly before Him in the world. D.A. Carson says, kind of picking up the same idea, that this is a hungering and thirsting for the conformity to God's will. So this righteousness is right standing with God, but it's also righteousness, meaning I want to live out God's life. I want to be conformed to his will in my life. I don't want to sin. I don't want to be pleased with temporal pleasures. I want Jesus. I want to live out his life. I want to walk in the way that he wants me to walk. So let's not miss this, okay? This is absolutely key. There's there's an obvious thing. It's insinuating, it's, it's implying that every Christian is going to feel hunger and thirst for God. It's not saying you should, it's saying that you will. How deep should that be? Think of this. The moment a non-Christian becomes a Christian. Have you ever, have you ever led someone to Christ? Have you ever seen... In, this, in that moment, when you've led them to Christ, you've explained the gospel, and all of a sudden, they've said, I want that. That's exactly what I want. The, the angst within them, the tears that come, the desire within them, the hunger and the thirst that's in them to want Jesus. Think of the degree. If we could measure that, it's pretty enormous. And what he's saying is, that degree in which the non-Christian at the moment of salvation desires or hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that is an indicator of our heart and how we are to desire and hunger and thirst for righteousness continually. That's pretty, that's pretty breathtaking. The hunger and thirst for righteousness in the life of the Christian isn't to wane. It isn't to be some kind of roller coaster, and I know that's our, our experience. But what he's saying is, we are to hunger and thirst for this righteousness in the same way that the non-Christian, at the moment of faith, wants it, and that's to be our experience for the rest of our life. So let's just get real practical here. And we're only going to do the first two, obviously. Um, let's just get really practical here. I'm going to just be real practical, all right? You can ask yourself this. Do I ever hunger and thirst for righteousness in that way? Do I even have an understanding of what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness in that way? And here, I'm just going to get real practical for you. I'm going to show you, because the Bible is pretty obvious here and it's telling us, how to feel that, all right? Or at least understand whether you do or not. What I want you to do is this. Fast. Miss a meal. Miss two meals. Miss three meals in a row. 
intentionally. Miss those first two, one, two, or three meals in a row. Don't eat for a whole day. And at the end of the day, whenever you're starving, I want you to ask yourself, stop and ask yourself this question. Do I hunger? Consider your hunger at that time. Consider how much you want food at that moment when you've missed one, two, three meals. Take stock of what it feels like and then ask yourself this question. Do I hunger for Jesus this badly? As much as I want food right now, I am ready to storm Waffle House. Do I want food as much as I want it? Do I want Jesus that bad continually? And further, do I pursue righteousness? Do I pursue righteousness with the same vigor that I am going to pursue food within this next hour? Do I pursue righteousness that that much? That's real practical. Do you pursue righteousness? I don't know. But go hungry for three meals. Consider what it feels like to be hungry and how bad you want food and then stop and say, do I want Jesus continually that bad? Because here's the promise. Don't miss the promise. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness that way, the promise is you will be satisfied. It's not maybe. It's you will be satisfied. You will have it. You will have satisfaction, filling. The longing for righteousness issues from a broken heart. We have to be broken over our sin. And as we're broken, the promise comes to us and then we realize I'm hungry and thirsting for righteousness and then God gives us satisfaction. Now, there's a couple things I want to get here and then we're going to be done. First is, This being satisfied is not saying that the hunger won't come back again. This being satisfied in righteousness does not mean it's a final. It is continual. There will be seasons of hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Just like Philippians 3. Paul, in Philippians 3.10, he says that he wants to know Christ. This is what he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of, of the dead. So he's saying, I desire, I long, I hunger to know Jesus and live out his life in my life. Not that I've already obtained this or been already made perfect, but I press on because Christ Jesus, to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. D.A. Carson's talking about this cycle of desiring righteousness as it goes continually forward. He says, this built-in cycle of growth is easy to understand when we remember that righteous is not obeying rules, but it's conforming to God's will. It's living out the gospel. It's not law-keeping, it's gospel. It's easy to understand that we we can grow in this righteousness um, because it's not obeying rules. The more a person continually conforms to the will of God, the more attractive the goal becomes and the greater advances are made. It's pretty awesome. I mean, that is so, so beautiful and so helpful. So let me, let me close with this because this is absolutely key, all right? If you listen to anything, like, listen to this. This is key. This feeling of righteousness, this satisfaction that is given to us is not some kind of nebulous vague, intangible feeling of righteousness that we get within ourselves. It's not some kind of, what is all this? I'm just getting a good feeling here. That is not the satisfaction you're feeling. That is not the righteousness that you're pursuing after and satisfaction you're getting. The satisfaction that we are getting is that we get God himself. 
You get God. You get to have more Christ in your life. We get Christ. We get to know Christ. We get to be intimate with Jesus. God gives you the gift of himself. And if he didn't give you the gift of himself, then there's really nothing else he can give. The best gift that God can give you is himself. That sounds arrogant. If I come up to my wife and say, Christy, I'm going to give you the gift of myself and my presence. She would say, well, all right, thanks a lot, but not all the time. Um, But because I'm sinful. And so it's absolutely arrogant for any one of us to say, you get the gift of me. Because we're sinful. But God is not sinful. He's infinitely holy. There is no better gift that we can get from Him. We don't need money. We don't need power. We don't need stuff. We need Him. The best gift that He can give because He is perfect is Himself. So this righteousness that we're hungering and thirsting for, this satisfaction that we are getting is God. He gives us the gift of Himself. And we're being satisfied in Him. Because there is no better satisfaction to find than in Christ. We're going to have to close there. So let's just... um, Let's just stop here and ask ourselves just a couple questions. Because I'm not going to beat you over the head and I'm not going to say, so be meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness. Come on, because these are the things about who you are, not what you're to do. The fourth one, I don't know if I ever put it on the screen, is if you have believed the gospel, you do hunger and thirst for righteousness. Therefore, you will be satisfied. If you're a believer in Christ, you are meek. You do hunger and thirst. Don't let the trappings of the world, the distractions of temporal pleasure, pull you away from the things that are already true of you if you're in Christ. If you, if you know that you're kind of distant and you need prayer, you know that you've kind of surveying your life over this last 40 minutes, 45 minutes, and you're saying, this is not true of me. And I want those things true of me, but I don't even get what that means. If you've walked with Christ or maybe you put your faith in Christ at one time and you know that these things aren't true, I just want you to feel free to come talk and pray with me. I'll be right over here. I want, I want the opportunity to be able to pray with you. If walking down in front of people during the song makes you nervous, come find us afterwards. We'll be down here, down front. We want to be able to pray with you. Here's the next thing. If, if what I'm saying when you first walked in sounded like sheer silliness, and over the last 40 minutes, God has opened up your eyes to the fact that the way you walk does not please God. That you know that you're not a Christian. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit has come in and as you at first had no care about the things of God, now He's opening up your mind and your eyes to the fact that He is the most important reality in the world. And you are supposed to walk with Him. You are supposed to care. That your eternal perspective is the wrath of God is on me until I put my faith in Christ. And I don't want the wrath of God on me. I want Christ. I want forgiveness. I want to know Him who died for me. Then I want to invite you to come and talk to me. The Bible says that today is the day for salvation. This isn't something that you can just kind of play around with the rest of your life and at the the end say, well, I want it. That's ignoring 
the promptings of the Spirit right now. And that is not what we're supposed to do. It doesn't matter your life. It doesn't matter your stage. It doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are. If the Holy Spirit's pressing into you right now that you need Jesus, then you need Jesus. You need forgiveness. You need to believe in the gospel right now. And quit faking and quit playing. And for those of you that are Christians and you're struggling and you're trying and you want these things to be true of you, and it's just like me, it's just day by day, you're like, wow, these things are true and I want them to be true. Listen, take heart because don't miss this, Christian. Don't miss this. Your right standing with God is not predicated on performance. Okay? The gospel is that right now you have perfectly right standing with God. Let that be the thing that out of love for Christ and joy of salvation lets you live out this life of sanctification. Let that be the thing that lets you live out the life of holiness. Live out conforming yourself to God's will in your life. 30 years from now, when you've been more obedient, you're not going to have a more right standing with God. You have it now. And that's beautiful. And that gives you the desire and the joy to know that the next 30 years as you bear fruit, that's giving evidence of the things that are happening in your life. It's such a joy to know that we're not performing. It's such a joy. I'm going to pray and then we'll go into our time of worship. And however God has led you this morning, I just pray that you would be obedient and that you would pray, sit, read your Bible, come forward and pray with me, stand and worship, whatever the Lord's doing in your heart. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. And God, I know that there is, <laughs> um, within ourselves, there's really nothing inside of me that desires to seek after you unless you draw me to yourself. And so I'm so thankful God, that you have opened my eyes to see the gospel. It's, there's nothing I can boast about in Christ besides Jesus. The only thing I can boast in is the cross. There's nothing within me that I can boast about. I thank you for that work. I pray for everyone here, Lord, wherever they are spiritually, if they are far from you or if they are brand new Christians or if they have come to you and walked away or if they're walking with you right now, Lord, wherever they are, that you would put your spirit in them now and encourage them and comfort them. And those who need conviction, convict them. Help them see that walking a life of sin is not your desire, but conforming themselves to your will is your desire. And wherever they are spiritually, Lord, I pray. God, I pray that you would move them this morning to action. I thank you for Jesus. And God, I pray that you would open our affections now as we worship to focus our lives and our thoughts on him and worship him in majesty for all the glory he is due. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.